Hello there, this is Tom Mess speaking to you, and this is Killing. You are watching Shin Yatsukamoto's first period film, or Jidai Geki, to use the Japanese term, film set in Japan's pre modern era, what we often refer to as samurai films. Now, if you are more familiar with Tsukamoto's sci fi and uh, cyberpunk works, uh, this particular film may seem a bit out of character or a bit unusual for you, but if you look beyond uh, say the strict confines of, a, of the genre of, or genre in general, you will notice, I think, that Killing has much in common with, for instance, his Tetsuo films. We can find that in particular in the, the early scenes of the film, the start we are watching now, um, in which we see the forging of uh, the, the iron blade for a katana, or a samurai sword, and uh, which already kind of hints at the connection between uh, this film and the early films, which is the theme of uh, humanities and human civilizations' intimate relation to metal and how the fusion of a human body and metal can create a deadly weapon. And in Tetsuo, as you probably know, uh, this takes the shape of the cyborg, the cybernetic organism, half human, half machine, uh, which is a very cyberpunk motif, of course. And with killing, we go back to the figure of the samurai warrior, uh, for whom the sword was ideally part of the body. Body, mind and sword had to function as a single unit. So the fusion that is uh, literal and physical in the case of the cyborg uh, is one that is achieved through rigorous training in the case of the samurai. So there we find a connection between uh, Tsukamoto's earliest work and Tsukamoto's most recent work. Um, that said, it also places Killing in a direct line with its predecessor, Fires on the Plane, which was, of course, Tsukamoto's previous film before he made Killing, and which was set in World War II, and which looked at soldiers, soldiers in war. Uh, in other words, human beings that use guns and explosives, which is another historical example of the human body being made to function as a weapon. So there's this thread that runs through all of Tsukamoto's work from his first, reach, his first feature all the way to this one, Killing, his, his latest, or at least his latest at the moment, of recording this audio commentary. In any case, his, the most recent film included in this set. And the early shots in this film of uh, the, the smithy and of the forging of the blade is, is really quintessential Tsukamoto. You know, they take us right back to the opening scenes of Tetsuo the Iron Man, where you see the scavenging of scrap metal in a rundown junkyard, and then the attempt to surgically insert those bits of junk into the human body. Now, when we talk about cyberpunk, our image, I think, of that genre, since Kamoto is still to this day uh, identified with cyberpunk, uh, anyway, our image of that genre is very high-tech. Uh, but we shouldn't remember, uh, sorry, we shouldn't forget that cyberpunk also offered the flip side of high-tech, which was low life. 
You know, even in the William Gibson novels that started it all, the protagonists are always marginal figures that have to sort of cobble together their own technology from whatever is available, including discarded junk. And in fact, for the most part, it's discarded junk. But then again, one man's junk is another man's treasure, and it only depends on how it's defined by the majority. Um, but anyway, that's where the idea of retrofitting came from. You know, like you see in Blade Runner, where things are just built on top of other things without a sense of real planning. Everything's sort of held together by bits of copper wire and crude welding. Spit and chicken wire, so to speak. But that's not very cyberpunk. Um, but Kamoto's version of cyberpunk has always really focused very strongly on that, on that low-tech angle. And uh, while Western cyberpunk authors and uh, cyberpunk artists always saw and depicted Japan and Tokyo as, as kind of the vision of the, of the high-tech future, very much in line with where Japan and Tokyo were, uh, you know, in terms of their geopolitical standing during the, the 1980s. But Japanese cyberpunk paradoxically tended to be very low-tech. Uh, in my commentary on the on the Tetsuo the Iron Man disc in this set, I discussed that point in uh, in more detail. But if you're interested in this seeming contradiction and where it may have originated, then I strongly recommend that you check out a book called Full Metal Apache, uh, written by uh, a scholar named Takayuki Tatsumi, and it's a book that investigates the interaction between American and uh, and Japanese cyberpunk and uh, how and why they differ. Now, I don't know if you've seen the third Tetsuo film, Tetsuo the Bullet Man, but uh, that one was largely shot in the city of Kawaguchi, um, which these days is essentially a suburb uh, northwest of Tokyo, just across the uh, municipal border with the neighboring prefecture, Saitama. In uh, earlier years, Kawaguchi was known for its iron foundries and smithies. So that was the reason for Tsukamoto's decision to shoot the third Tetsuo film there. Um, I remember going to visit the film shoot uh, on location in Kawaguchi. And while I was taking a walk in the area during a break, break in filmmaking, I found uh, that quite a few of the old metal workshops were still in operation in, in the area where they were shooting at the time. And I know that uh, Tetsuo the Bullet Man is generally not a well-liked film, even amongst Kamoto enthusiasts, but it's a crucial oeuvre in, uh, sorry, a crucial work in his oeuvre um, nonetheless, and, uh, and for this reason alone it's, it's worth checking out. Um, the director, Tsukamoto, even bought a former foundry in Kawaguchi, and he shot many of the of Tetsuo the Bullet Man's interiors there. And ever since, he's uh, he's been using it as like the storage house and the office for his production company, Kaiju Theater. The dual scene, this is when we meet uh, Sawamura, played by Shinya Tsukamoto. Um, kind of the, not if not exactly the villain character, but at least the, the the kind of the cat, the character that has the catalyst function that uh, a, a lot of uh, major characters in Skamoto's films have. Um, his duel, as we meet him, a duel was another samurai, masterless samurai. 
That dual scene establishes uh, a number of things for the remainder of the film. Firstly, of course, we learn about Sawamura's strength, uh, his prowess with the sword. Uh, we also learn about the character of Ichisuke, the young man, his fascination, his obsession even with the samurai and with becoming one himself, even though he is a farmer. And additionally, we get to know that Mokunoshin, who is our protagonist, uh, is a very perceptive about sword fighting and about the use of violence. Uh, initially, he doesn't even want to see the duel. But now that he's come to watch it, uh, he's going to quickly draw a number of conclusions. All right, we're going to see a first strike, and the result is that uh, Sawamura's opponent comes out with an injured hand. His hand is cut quite se quite severely, and that's the moment where we see, where we see Mokunoshin walking away from looking at the door because he understands that the battle is already decided. And he also doesn't want to stay to watch the actual killing, which is the inevitable outcome of this duel. He doesn't, he doesn't like that kind of violence at all, even though he is a, a samurai. So he's a bit of a samurai, uh, samurai apart. And that cut to the hand, that shot, it's a brief moment, but it's almost, it almost hurts when you're, when you're looking at it. I mean, we've all cut ourselves while we were in the kitchen, uh, you know, mistakenly. We all know how much that hurts. I mean, how, how even a small cut on your hand or your fingers can incapacitate you. Uh, so the violence in this film hurts, as it should. You know, it's not, it's not exciting, it's not uh, stylized to, be, to look beautiful, it's not aestheticized. And as the film progresses, the violence uh, suddenly gets far worse than this rel still relatively minor cut that Sawamura's opponent suffers from. Also, speaking of uh, establishing a number of things, uh, the broken slipper is uh, something that says uh, a thing or two, not only about Sawamura, but about the, the status of the samurai in general uh, during the setting of this film. And of course, that also goes for the character of Mokunoshin, our protagonist, the fact that he is working in a farming village. And that's something we uh, ought to be talking about because, uh, well, not, not all viewers may be aware of this, um, uh, the specific historical period during which killing takes place. So you may say, uh, well, it's... Uh, it's a samurai film, so it's set in feudal Japan. But even to people who like to watch samurai films, it might not be apparent that the films in this genre can be set in different and quite distinct historical periods. And the period setting of killing explains a lot about the characters, uh, specifically the samurai characters, and their behavior. <coughs> yeah, because I said the samurai characters look very, seem to be very poor and down on their luck. Not just Sawamura because of his broken slipper, not just Mokunoshin because he works for farmers, but it also goes for the troop of, of former samurai bandits that we see later who look like absolute 
you know, just look like homeless people, essentially. So in the case of killing, the setting is uh, the final years of the Edo period, uh, which corresponds with the mid-19th century. Uh, the Edo period, uh, as you may know, was when the Tokugawa family ruled Japan as a, as a dynasty of shogun. And shogun is a military title that essentially means a, a general, but effectively made the bearer uh, the supreme commander and, and, and effectively head of state as well. So when I say supreme, I mean it means it meant that he wielded the samurai, sorry, the shogun wielded more political power than the emperor during the Edo, Edo period. Uh, so the Tokugawa shogunate started around 1600 and ended in 1868 with uh, the restoration of the imperial house and what is called uh, the Meiji period began that year. And that's when Japan began to modernize very, very rapidly because the, sh the Tokugawa shoguns had essentially closed off the country to the rest of the world for uh, 260 years. And uh, on the one hand, that indicates how absolute the power of the shoguns was. Uh, it also meant, of course, that Japan was far behind the modern, let's say, imperialist powers of the Western world at that period. So as Western knowledge and science trickled into Japan and countries such as Great Britain and the United States began to engage in uh, gunboat, gunboat diplomacy in East Asia. Uh, the cracks that had already been forming in the social fabric of feudal Japanese society just began to split open because of that extra pressure from outside. Um, those cracks were almost uh, inevitably, in, you know, the almost inevitable result of the way that society during you know, in, in, the, in the Edo period under the Tokugawa was structured, uh, which was in, as a rigid, a rigid class system in which the warrior class were at the top, uh, followed by farmers, then artisans and finally merchants. And it was impossible to transition between classes once you were born in a class and you died in that same class. And so you remained there for your entire life. And so a farmer could not become a warrior and a warrior could never go down the ladder, uh, no matter how poor he might become. He would always remain uh, a part of what was, essentially, what was essentially the aristocracy. So merchants were actually at the bottom rung in terms of social prestige. However, as you can imagine, this didn't stop them from gradually accumul accumulating wealth. And the warrior class, so basically the samurai, even though the actual word samurai more accurately, more accurately translates uh, as, a, as a servant, a servant to a, a lord, a feudal lord, a retainer, um, the warrior class was basically a, a bunch of leeches, essentially. Uh, living off fat paychecks of, of tax tax money, and which was paid by all the lower classes, but not by them. So the entire top social class during the Edo period was subsidized by everyone who was below them. Uh, nevertheless, samurai were, uh, to all intents and purposes, useless to society because they were warriors. However, Japan was at peace during the entire Edo period. 
So warriors became essentially useless. And uh, that's how you get uh, the development of uh, what we today consider to be traditional Japanese arts, such as uh, flower arrangements and uh, you know, uh, tea ceremony and uh, uh, tending to bonsai and that sort of thing. Those, these things were all invented to give the samurai something to do during the Edo period. And, uh, and these were raised to a level of being uh, great elevated forms of art uh, in order to fit in with the, 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 the image of being an elite class in society. So these are things that are very consciously chosen. The development of Bushido also during this same period uh, didn't really exist before that. Uh, it's, it was just a, the creation of a warrior code uh, was intended to give the samurai a certain distinction in society. Even though the warrior code, strictly speaking, when they were developing it, was already quite useless, which they knew very well, of course. Um, now, the backbone of the economy in the Tokugawa period was rice, which basically had the same function as gold has in our, our economy. So quite naturally, rice merchants were the first of that class to make it big. And the rest of, the, of the, the, the merchant class sort of organically benefited through various other forms of trade. Um, and also quite naturally, bad harvests would massively affect the economy and would massively affect those in power. Um, so those are the essential recipes for a gradual decline of the warrior class and the rise in power of the merchant class as the Edo period continues. Then in the 19th century come these foreign powers in their steel warships to demand that Japan trade with them. And, uh, you know, make no mistake, the Tokugawa family and prominent, prominent members of the, of the warrior class were well aware what had happened in China and what had happened to China when it refused to trade with the British. So you get the Opium Wars and that's where you get the beginning of uh, a period uh, of China being uh, divided uh, and ruled over by, uh, by various foreign factions and warlords. Uh, which, uh, of course, the, the Tokugawa family and, uh, and uh, the rulers of Japan were quite eager to avoid, even if a lot of the samurai themselves uh, were absolutely unwilling to change anything at all. Um, and so that's the situation you have around the middle of the 19th century. It's a weakening regime, which is well aware of its own weakness, and of course, at the same time, reluctant to relinquish, foreign, for, to relinquish power. And you have a cracking social structure with plenty of people in positions of power who are of the opinion that Japan should open up and modernize in order to survive. So you have two powerful factions. One is uh, on the way down, but very reluctant to let go of its power. And there's one that is on the way up and is very eager for change. Which sounds a little bit like what's happening in the world today, doesn't it? So, guess who won? Of course, uh, changes came, but they didn't come without a fight. So, the militantly conservative members of the warrior class uh, set up a militia with the goal of maintaining their lifestyle and to resist change. And these militias uh, 
spread out in factions across the country were called the Shinsengumi, which literally means a group of the newly chosen. And these militias consisted not only of samurai, uh, because there were many of the samurai class who were in the opposite camp. So simply being samurai class did not automatically mean that they could be, you know, that they had the same uh, ideological outlook. Um, so the Shinsengumi started to allow members of lower classes that, like them, resisted the changes that were happening. And those that resisted were notably farmers. And so a lot of the new members of the Shinsengumi militias, uh, under the, the tutelage of, uh, of genuine samurai from the warrior class, um, were farmers. And that's the reason why uh, in killing you see uh, Ichisuke, who is a farm boy, training with Mokunoshin, who is a warrior. And uh, before this final, uh, this final uh, period of the Edo era, that was absolutely unthinkable. And this is also why Sawamura, who's also a warrior, uh, talks about recruiting both of them to go to Edo to fight. And his plan is to, sh just to join the Shinsengumi with as many able-bodied men as he can find on his, on his trek across the country to, uh, to the capital. <laughs> so where farmers previously lived in a quite a rigidly controlled uh, class system, and rigid, with rigid control, I mean rigid control uh, on, on the level of like Eastern Germany during the communist era, uh, with spies everywhere and uh, people, people uh, ratting, ratting out their neighbors. Uh, that's where, that's what farmers lived in for, uh, you know, close to three centuries. But now, meaning mid nineteenth century, they had a chance of moving up in the world. So who can blame them really for seizing that opportunity? And the future is uh, is still uncertain, after all. Um, you may notice again that uh, we can we could apply this situation almost directly to our current world and uh, and its uncertainties, its upheaval, its uh, its uh, changes in in uh, social structures. Those in power feeling a certain uh, uh, thread from the ones that have all that, all, that they had always marginalized. Uh, of course, that's that's not an accident. This is something that I think Tsukamoto consciously intended when he made killing, uh, making killing now that he, you know, during this period, um, and very you know very commonly a film about the past is always also a film about the present. So if we look at uh, the character of Mokunoshin, our protagonist, in this particular light, I think we can start to notice that he really is a contemporary character. Yeah. He's uh, basically like a samurai, but with the moral compass of a person from the 21st century. In his you know, adversity to fighting, his adversity to inflicting violence, um, his dislike of solving problems with violence. That is also something that is expressed in the, the generation gap 
between him and Sawamura. Sawamura represents the fading social structure, which he is uh, anxious to preserve in spite of knowing that it is fading. I mean, Sawamura is, is a very perceptive character and is well aware of this, yet uh, he is a samurai and that is what he does. Nevertheless, so he, you know, he, he denies to, to the outside world, he denies that it is fading. Um, and he is aging also, and uh, would uh, naturally prefer to spend his, uh, his uh, later years in, in uh, familiar peace rather than uh, uncertain turmoil. Yet Mokunoshin is so young and uh, really has very little need for a society that has no future. So we could easily compare him to various developments and social trends that have been happening among young people in the world around us today, um, uh, including young Japanese people in recent, recent times. Um, look at uh, the end of, of uh, the system of lifetime employment when the, the Japanese economic bubble burst at the beginning of the 1990s. You know, people dropped out of, of that rat race because they were they knew they couldn't get lifetime employment anymore. So what was the point of going to a, a, a top university? And if there's no point going to a top university, then what's the point of studying hard in high school? And um, eventually you get a, a generation that gets on, uh, that gets by with part-time jobs and who prefer leisure time over corporate servitude, like uh, the samurai salary man lifestyle. I almost said samurai, but of course, in the past, ideologically, the salary man was seen as you know, the, uh, white collar, white collar warriors. So they like to see themselves, or at least they were projected as being the new elite class of society uh, in the post-war era. But to get back to the young who want to break up with that, uh, you know. Uh, look at the government of uh, Shinzo Abe, the current prime minister in Japan. You know, people, young people suddenly found a political consciousness, um, started protesting Abe's plans for increasingly repressive legislation. Um, and Mokunoshin, I think, is very much like them, you know, like one of the more perceptive young people in the world and in Japan today. Incidentally, if you follow the news from Japan, you may likely have heard the name Shinsengumi quite recently. Um, a political party, a new political party called the Reiwa Shinsengumi, won two seats in the upper house elections in July 2019, which was only three months <coughs> excuse me, after, the part, after the party was formed. Um, now, it's already fairly unusual for a brand new political party in Japan, as opposed to a rebranded existing party, because there's plenty of those as well. It's unusual for a new party to gain seats in any election in Japan, but more interesting was the fact that the two representatives who were elected were both severely physically handicapped. And some quite radical modifications had to be made to uh, the, the assembly building to allow them access. Um, this is an interesting uh, subversive touch to the outcome of, uh, of, those, of those elections. 
And the, the Reiwa part of the, the, the party name, of course, obviously refers to the new age that began in Japan with the ascension of the new emperor, Naruhito, which also happened in 2019. Um, the party, uh, incidentally, also has a, a couple of film connections. Uh, firstly, it was the subject of a documentary by uh, Kazuo Hara, which was titled Reiwa Uprising. Uh, secondly, the party was formed by a former actor, Taro Yamamoto, who you may know if you've seen Kenji Fukasaku's film Battle Royale. He uh, played one of the, the so-called exchange students who was uh, sent back into the battle after winning uh, a previous edition. By the way, uh, even though Killing is his first samurai film, uh, this is not the first time that the Shinsengumi appear in one of Tsukamoto's films. Uh, this, this is something you will know if you've watched uh, The Adventure of Denchu Kozo in this set, and uh, especially if you've listened to my commentary track on that disc. If you haven't watched it yet, then of course, firstly, I recommend that you do, because it's absolutely delightful. Um, the film that Tsukamoto made before Tetsu the Iron Man, shot on 8mm film, uh, super independent film uh, that won a pretty major award in Japan, uh, which was Tsukamoto's first breakthrough, as I said, even before Tetsu the Iron Man. Um, it's, an, it's not a samurai film, uh, but sci-fi fantasy about a future Japan, in which a group of vampires try to conquer the world with a machine that creates eternal darkness. And that group of vampires in the film is named the Shinsengumi. And Tsukamoto in that one also added a future variation on a historical character named Ryoma Sakamoto, who was one of those samurai during the end of the Edo period. Who was uh, a prominent figure of the warrior class that uh, worked to restore the emperor to power? Who was a, a modern, a modernist? So he's a great example of uh, the many members, in fact, of the warrior class that understood that their time was over, and who therefore chose to be uh, in the the opposing camp to the Shinsengumi. だけ I mentioned earlier Killing's connection with Fires on the Plain uh, in terms of how both films portray historical examples of human bodies being made to function as weapons. Um, Killing also continues on from uh, that previous film as Tsukamoto's reaction to the growing threat of war in Japan. And uh, as you may know, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has been trying uh, for a long time to modify uh, the nation's constitution and more specifically the famous Article 9, which forbids Japan from having an army 
and uh, in which the country forever renounces the option of going to war and renounces aggression. Um, essentially, you can say that getting that article scrapped from the Constitution has been the main goal of his tenure, his, his lengthy tenure. And in actual fact, it's a mission he inherited from his grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, who was uh, Japan's prime minister from 1957 to 1960, but was also uh, a leading government official during a large part of World War II. Um, for example, Kishi was one of the people that signed the Declaration of War against the United States in 1941. And uh, he was in fact imprisoned as a Class A war criminal between 1945 and 1948, but eventually was released, uh, knew who to, who to collaborate with at that point, uh, got back in power, and as we said, eventually became a Prime Minister. Um, so his grandson is uh, continuing the mission of uh, making Japan, uh, you know, a fully mil military state again. We could even say perhaps militarist state if we want to be very pessimistic, which I think uh, a lot of people in Japan are, and Tsukamoto also is to a degree. Uh, so for him, fires on the plane and killing uh, have been ways to explore what the effects could be of possible future involvement of Japan in war. Um, and he does that by having the past stand in for the present, as I said. You know, films about the past are usually about the present. Uh, I think central in both films, Fires on the Plane and Killing, is the effect of war on individuals in terms of their exposure to violence, uh, in terms of um, being forced to resort to violence. Also, the moral conflicts inherent with being faced with such a situation, which is really what the story of killing revolves around. You know, the character of Mokono Shin, who is the younger samurai, of course, um, makes a choice to refrain from using violence altogether, but nevertheless, he is forced by circumstances, uh, including his, uh, his, uh, his social descent, his social class, and the choices of those around him, those all force him to engage in violence after all. And as a character, he's, as I said, quite anachronistic, you know, essentially a contemporary character placed into a past scenario. Uh, so he's a samurai, but his moral compass is almost that of a 21st century person. And in doing so, Tsukamoto, of course, allows, us, allows himself to pose the question of how we today would react and I consciously say react rather than act. If we were placed in a situation where violence and killing become very real possibilities, you know, Mokunoshin becomes our, our stand-in, the audience, the viewer's stand-in. And so he has one, one foot in, the, in our contemporary era and one foot in, in the, the late Edo era. Also, it's interesting to note that the Japanese title of the film, and uh, if you didn't notice this uh, straight away, you can go back to the beginning of the film and check this for yourself. There's like the calligraphed title card at the beginning of the film. The title ends with a comma. And the comma, of course, suggests that things continue. That suggests a follow-up. Something comes afterwards. So there is killing, and then... Comma, dot, dot, dot. So... Just the very presence of the comma 
in that title already evokes the fact that there are consequences to killing. That forms something of a, a change of approach for, uh, for Tsukamoto. Uh, in past films, such as the Tetsuo films, or Tokyo Fist, or Bullet Ballet, his, uh, his protagonists were uh, also forced into facing and using violence, but in those films such situations tended to, uh, to function as a wake-up call for the character. You know, it, woke, it woke the character from uh, the stupor, let's say, the numbness of, of uh, routine uh, life in the big city in the 20th or 21st century. I think, uh, especially in terms of 20th, 20th century, uh, 1980s, 1990s, uh, about that period, Skamoto felt that uh, the Japanese were living their lives half asleep, and they were sort of like lulled into a, a slumber by a combination of uh, you know, economic uh, advancement, comfort, and, uh, and the drudgery of working life. Also, this, you know, the, the seeming, or at least the experienced, disconnection from the natural world, which of course is very characteristic of if you live in a, in a metropolis or a megalopolis such as, such as Tokyo. Um, so his characters were you know, nearly always dedicated salarymen, white-collar workers, who suddenly have the rug pulled out from under them. You know, it's, uh, uh, the death of a child in Tetsuo 2, uh, the departure of a partner in Tokyo Fist, and the death of a partner in Bullet Ballet. Yeah, and that, that's, that gives rise to certain feelings that you have to, and they have to give vent to their frustration and rage. And uh, in doing so, they essentially become weapons, in a sense. You know? uh, of course, in Tetsuo, um, it's you know literally like a huge hunk, you know, like a huge hunk of metal, a big, big, uh, like a, like a large cannon, you know, an artillery, an artillery gun or something. In Tokyo Fist, it's becoming a boxer, and bullet ballet, it's uh, you know becoming the owner of a gun, and thus uh, uh, achieving the, the 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 power of killing someone. Um, and through that, that process, and especially the, the, the rage and giving it uh, an outlet, they, they start to feel wholly alive again. So that's the point of those films, period. Um, with Killing and with Fires on the Plane, Tsukamoto has become much more skeptical of this idea of humans becoming weapons. So, in a sense, he is questioning not only Japan's political shifts, and ideological shifts, but in doing so, he also questions himself as an artist. I think his 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 previous methods of expression. So, fires on the plane and killing are far more, I would say, skeptical and darker films than any he has made before. Which is not to say that they're that they're nihilist works. I think quite to the contrary. I would say. Uh, it's, their, it's their refusal of violence and it's their moral compass that prevent them from becoming works of nihilism. Having said all that, that perhaps suggests or implies as a, a, a break, perhaps even a rupture in, uh, in Tsukamoto's body of work, but uh, of course uh, I'm omitting the films that came between um, essentially Bullet Ballet and Fires on the Plane, 
which of course were the films like Snake of June, Vital and Kotoko. And all of those films deal with you know, awareness of the human body and the human mind for their own worth, you know, their inherent value. Uh, this is something I talk about in a fair bit of detail on my commentaries in uh, for Snake of June and Kotoko. Uh, so if you line up all of Tsukamoto's films and look at what issues and themes they deal with, you'll see a very gradual, almost organic development. I've called it an evolution in some of my other commentaries on this set. And that evolution continues into fires on the plane and killing, I would say. Uh, both of which deal very strongly with the value and with the sanctity of the human mind, the human body, human life, uh, precisely by showing these as being threatened by war and by violence. Uh, once again, Tetsu the Bullet Man is a film that needs to be mentioned in this respect, in this context, uh, because it precedes Fires on the Plane and Killing, and also uh, to a smaller extent Kotoko, as a more conscious exploration of the theme of, uh, of the weaponized human body, the theme of, uh, of war's effect on, uh, on the human human's health and, and sanity. Uh, and especially, in, you know, it does so in the light of political developments in society at large, just like fires on the plane and killing are connected to uh, today's world, today being, you know, as I record this, uh, late 2010s, early 2020s, um, the era of, uh, of uh, Shinzo Abe and, uh, and Donald Trump and, uh, and, uh, and Brexit. And just the same way that so the Bullet Man was uh, a film that dealt with similar themes in the light of developments in society uh, some you know, uh, good 10-12 years earlier. Uh, that time, meaning America's neoconservative wars in the Middle East, uh, the era of George W. Bush, uh, you know, the era of weapons of mass destruction. Um, so Tetsu the Bullet Man is definitely a precursor here and an important one. So it's, it's a bit sad that um, Tetsu the Bullet Man is not a part of this particular set because its inclusion, I think, would have been the perfect opportunity to reassess that film's merits uh, within the context of Tsukamoto's body of work, precisely because it was so uh, so kind of disliked when it came out. And uh, in this regard, in terms of the, the you know the changes that Fires on the Plane and Killing have brought about thinking about consequences, it's also really interesting to note that Fires on the Plane and uh, killing have unhappy endings whereas basically every Tsukamoto film up until then always had a, a happy ending a, a sense of, of satisfaction you get from the endings of the earlier films which things are resolved to a great degree um, even if they aren't fully resolved you still feel like something you know is, has been has been restored or set right at least uh, whereas fires on the plane and killing really end on uh, kind of uh, down, down notes. Fires on the plane, the main character ends up with a lifelong trauma uh, due to his experiences in the battlefield. Killing, as we will see, and I assume that you've watched the whole film before listening to this commentary, 
um, master and pupil will face off and uh, neither of them is uh, going to come out the better. And as a result, all the possibilities that Mokonoshin might have had in his future if he had stayed in that village are also destroyed, including his love um, with the, the young lady. There's uh, a s another thing that connects all of Tsukamoto's films, and uh, that is the fact of human beings' connections to the natural world. I only briefly hinted at it earlier, and I've uh, discussed that in a fair bit of detail, uh, especially on the commentary of uh, uh, Kotoko. Um, and there, but there too, we see a very direct relation between fires on the plane and killing which is that they are both set in nature. Um, and nature that at the same time shapes the characters' lives, but is also completely indifferent to it. Um, I mentioned that many of Tsukamoto's earlier films were about the urban environment's influence on the characters, you know, kind of the, the numbing effect of daily life surrounded by concrete steel and glass, uh, with no apparent presence of nature in it. Um, but from that beginning onwards, you start to see how Snake of June and Vital start to introduce nature as a, as a liberation from that uh, urban life and urban experience. But, of course, when you make a period piece, that urban environment doesn't exist yet. So you can only set your film in a world that is ruled by nature, essentially. Uh, for Tsukamoto, that begins, I would say, with his film Gemini from 1999, um, which is set in the first years of the 20th century. Now, I said earlier that uh, Killing is his first period film. Well, that's not entirely correct. So, but Gemini is not a samurai film. Gemini is set, as I said, early the early years of the 20th century, um, which is essentially the period of modernization that comes after the period that is depicted in Killing. Yeah, so we're already in the, the, the modern era with that film. No more samurai. Um, so that's, uh, that's the, 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 the matter where you know, exploring a world with no urban environment begins for Tsukamoto. Gemini's um, from 1999, 2000, uh, so when you come to Fires on the Plain uh, from 2014, you're dealing with a scenario of uh, a battle front in the tropics. And then you get the killing, which is set in the first half of the 19th century, before even the onset of, of modernization. So, using the contrast of nature and city in those films is, is really not an issue anymore. It's, it's noticeable that his two latest films basically no longer leave that behind. You know, it's in a sense, Tsukamoto has left the city behind and can now use nature, not for the contrast it creates, but as a neutral setting. And because nature is neutral, then it starts to function as the contrast, not to the city life, but to the very human foibles of the characters. 
uh, like in killing you see the frequent cutaways to clouds um, you know, nature doesn't care and nature will continue you know nature is permanent humanity human life is transient as we come to uh, the the very bloody, chaotic and uh, cruel battle with uh, the samurai vagrants. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the influence of uh, Jidai Geki, of period films, of samurai films, on Skamoto himself. Because he grew up uh, in the 1960s, he was born in 1960, so he grew up in the 60s and 70s in, in central Tokyo, uh, in the area that is now uh, Omotesando, Harajuku, very you know, among the hippest and most luxurious sections of Tokyo today. But when he lived there, it was still an area that was uh, largely flattened, you know, gradually recovering from the, the impact of the war. Um, the big advantage of growing up in such a central location was for him that there were always movie theaters nearby. So Skamoto grew up on a very generous diet of films. And among these were a lot of period films. Uh, so some of his favorites included uh, Seven Samurai and Yojimbo and Sanjiro, of course, films by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, also the films of director Kihachi Okamoto, such as Sword of Doom and the Red Lion, and also the Zatoichi films. Um, specifically in relation to killing, uh, Tsukamoto has also mentioned a film called Matatabi, uh, English title is The Wanderers, which was made by Konichikawa. In 1973 and uh, he mentions about that film especially the three protagonists who are farm boys that set out to become uh, kind of gangsters or gamblers uh, basically the, the precursors of the, the Yakuza gangsters um, and they sort of like try to to uh, to act like them they try to act accordingly but they fail to so they're kind of failures in a way but endearing failures um, you can see some of that influence on the, the character of the young man Ichisuke. You know, he dreams of becoming a samurai, but the first occasion he has to, to prove his mettle just uh, ends quickly in humiliation. Uh, now, the Shinsengumi and the end of the samurai era have often been the topic of films in the past, which is uh, logical given that you know, the conflict is inherent to, to that period, the samurai period. And one film I would like to mention specifically because it's lesser known, but very applicable and very, uh, uh, very interesting as, uh, as an example of uh, films during the, set during that period is a movie called The Last Samurai. And with that, I'm not referring to the Tom Cruise movie, although that one also is set during the same period, um, though with a, a very little regard for historic accuracy. Um, no, the actual the film I'm, I am referring to is uh, from 1975, uh, has the same English title. The original title is Okami o Rakujitsu Kide, and it was directed by Kenji Misumi, uh, a director you may know from many of the episodes in the Zatoichi series, uh, many of the episodes from Lone Wolf and Cub, many of the episodes of Sleepy Eyes of Death. So Misumi was a true specialist of the samurai film and uh, the last samurai was uh, his swan song, literally. 
It was the last film he made before he passed away. And it also really functions as a closing statement on the genre and on the, on the samurai from one of its uh, you know, main practitioners. And that film also deals with a masterless samurai, very much like Sawamura, who travels to Edo. And he has a choice between joining the Shinsengumi and uh, renouncing the sword, like Mukunoshin. Uh, he's he's age-wise, he's kind of in between the two characters from killing. And uh, he decides the latter, he renounces the sword, he renounces his samurai position. And he ends up being a barber which was a not uncommon choice for a samurai, you know, since they were skilled with a blade. <laughs> you know, so for the very same reason, a lot of samurai became uh, chefs, because they were very skillful with, with knives and blades. And a lot of swordsmiths became makers of kitchen knives and makers of, of razors. There is a company in Japan called uh, Kai, which is probably the biggest uh, one of the biggest manufacturers of, of uh, like kitchen kitchen knives and, and scissors and, uh, and uh, razors for men and women. And that used to be a, a maker of samurai swords during the Edo period. So by this point in the film we have essentially left that uh, farmer's village behind. Uh, it's interesting, I've talked about um, Tsukamoto's set design and about his, uh, his composition choices, his framing to create a real Tsukamoto world. Um, you can note, I think, how in this film the farmer's village is not really a village. You know, it's just basically three houses, essentially. Um, of course, there's a budgetary restriction at work there. I mean, Tsukamoto is an independent filmmaker, after all. You know, suffers from all the blessings and curses that come along with that, with that reality. Um, uh, but it also has to do with the realities of making a period film in today's Japan. You know, there's still a lot of nature to be found in Japan, but inevitably you will quickly be confronted with signs of, of civilization or modernity in that nature or on, on, the, on, on the edge of that nature. You know, very, whether it's a signpost, signpost or uh, electric wiring or a paved road or uh, uh, you know, a post office, whatever. Of course, none of those things existed yet in the period in which killing is set. So you have to choose your locations very carefully and uh, once you're on location, you also have to choose your framing very carefully. So often it becomes a case of, you know, if you move the camera just an inch to the left, then you'll spot that highway. And if you move it just an inch to the right, you'll see the, 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 the local post office or a, a, a factory or what have you. Um, so that situation dictates basically what you can shoot and how your film ends up looking. Um, you know, unless you, of course, you have the money to rent studio space, you know, and especially at one of the studio complexes in Japan that specialize in uh, in period film shoots. Uh, most of those sets, most of those locations, are uh, in Kyoto. And the city of Kyoto is traditionally the home of period film production, 
where Tokyo is uh, the home of like contemporary film production, contemporary set films. So you could go to a, a studio in Kyoto and have all these ready-made sets. You can you can decide to use those, but then your movie will end up looking like any other period movie or period TV series because they all use those uh, sound stages, they all use those sets, and they all use those same crew members and technicians that work at that studio. Um, you know, for the most part, also those sets are are city sets and they represent the old Edo or the old Kyoto uh, but killing of course is set in a, in a rural area where the city is a distant echo at best uh, or, or an illusion something that uh, that the characters fantasize about attaining at some point I think some words on uh, music for this film would be appropriate um, because Killing is the last film that was scored by Tsukamoto's regular composer Chuishikawa uh, who's done the music for uh, for all nearly all of Tsukamoto's films and most famously of course the, you know, the relentless industrial score for Tetsuo the Iron Man um, Chuishikawa passed away recently um, he had before he before he died he had already accepted to compose the music for killing uh, despite the fact that he was quite sick at the time um, but he died before the film's editing was finished so he never got to see the film and hence never got to actually compose music specifically for it that's, that's the stage at which most of the time the music starts to be composed after the film has been at least uh, reached a, a rough cut, a rough edit. Um, so in that situation, Scamotto uh, did at first consider looking for a different composer, but uh, as he started editing, he was already reusing as a temporary soundtrack, uh, you know, Ishikawa's music from his own earlier films um, and in the end essentially he felt that you know Ishikawa was very much a, a part of this film which is of course logical you know as I as I discussed before the whole idea of, of, of metal and its relation to uh, the human body uh, uh, runs through killing just as much as it runs through Tetsuo the Iron Man so it's absolutely understandable, logical that Chuishikawa's music would have to be a part of killing as well. So um, in the end Kamoto decided to ask Ishikawa's widow if she would allow him access to, uh, to Chuishikawa's unused recordings. So the music that you hear in the end in the finished film uh, consists of uh, recently made but previously unreleased work so to speak. Uh, which Tsukamoto edited to fit the film. So it was not music composed for the film, but it was music uh, repurposed in a sense for the film, which is, you know, <laughs> very much in keeping with, uh, as I talked about before, you know, the low-tech aesthetic uh, recycling, men them, you know, men them make do. Uh, but here very kind of consciously so 
with a, a double layer that is, uh, um, I think, a, a wonderful tribute to this quite unique musician. And since music uh, is always such a major component of uh, Tsukamoto film, it remains to be seen how much of an effect uh, Ishikawa's disappearance will have on, on, on the fabric and on the nature and on the feel of Tsukamoto's future works from here on in. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, as I, as I record this, at the time of this recording, Killing is his most recent and a very recent film. So I do not know yet how, how this is going to play out. Um, if he chooses to stay in the same vein, then he easily can do so. I mean, many of Ishikawa's collaborators and fellow band members are close acquaintances of Tsukamoto. Tsukamoto has also done, um, shot some, uh, some videos and some, some live recordings of uh, Ishikawa's band, uh, the Eisenrost, the you know, industrial noise outfit. And one of the percussionists in Eisenrost is uh, a gentleman called Shinichi Kawahara, who for many years, uh, from Tetsuo 2 onwards, used to be Tsukamoto's assistant director and sort of all-round right-hand man. I also mention him during my commentary uh, for Tetsuo 2. Um, but then again, you know, Tsukamoto may well choose to follow an entirely different course. Um, uh, take take uh, Kotoko for example. You know it was his his co-star and collaborator Koko on that film who did all the music. Of course she she was already a musician, but uh, such an example uh, may happen more often. He may choose to you know collaborate more closely with with musicians, make them part of the film, make them uh, uh, real creative collaborators rather than just uh, the composers or uh, contributors of a theme song. So we shall see what happens. Incidentally, uh, Sosuke Kematsu, the character who, uh, sorry, the actor who plays uh, Mokunoshin, our protagonist, uh, his, he made his film debut at the age of 13 in Tom Cruise's The Last Samurai. Go figure. Uh, well, you know, it's hardly, let's say, it's hardly exceptional for a, a Japanese actor to be playing in a samurai film now, is it? Uh, though generally he's, uh, well, he tends to play more, uh, um, let's say, contemporary roles, which is also the case for uh, his co-star, Yu Aoi. Um, perhaps you may know for uh, Hula Girls and All About Lily Shushu. Um, she tends to get uh, typecast a bit in uh, in roles as kind of playing a feisty and eccentric young ladies. Um, and uh, in a way, she's just <laughs> the same in Killing, isn't she? She. Uh, does kind of fit uh, fit the part in that respect. Uh, she and uh, her co-star Ikemats actually played in a in a TV film together before in 
2002 uh, at the time. Now, of course, they're they're playing would-be lovers, but in 2002, that was uh, the, uh, the the difference would have it was largely more noticeable between them because um, Yuawei was born in 1985 and Sosuke Kematsu in 1990. So at the age that they were then in 2002, uh, 17 years before this, uh, before killing, and that would not have been an obvious uh, pairing yet. They also played together before in a, in a, a war movie, applicably, a war movie called Yamato from 2005, and which is about uh, the, the ill-fated last mission of the... the the battleship Yamato during World War II. The film uh, moving into uh, the final scenes and sequences has uh, it, it focuses on uh, the the triangle of characters and the core characters now and. Uh, resumes kind of i said before that that uh, sawamura played by Tsukamoto, is not uh, necessarily a villain character in within the film but as we as we center on uh, the the quite familiar narrative uh, structure of uh, of the triangle at least quite familiar for Tsukamoto's films uh, he kind of uh, takes takes on that part And in terms of his uh, his catalyst uh, function, <clears throat> in the past, uh, such catalyst characters like Kojima in the, in Bullet Ballet, for example, would bring, let's say, the, the the couple closer together. Whereas in Killing, that is absolutely not the case. You know, it's it's the woman who continues to fight to keep them together. But it's uh, it's Sawamura's presence that drives the you know her man increasingly increasingly further away from her. But yeah, it's definitely in these final final minutes of the film that uh, this, has, in terms of characters and structure, most starts to resemble. Um, as, as you know, as, well, it sounds a bit disrespectful, but a standard Skamoto uh, film. Now, Skamoto, of course, um, just before making Killing, had played in uh, in uh, another samurai film, a period film, uh, Martin Scorsese's Silence. And, and that was a project that he was connected to for a long, long time. I mean, it's already a project that, that took a long time to get made. But he was um, connected to the film almost from the outset, uh, uh, even though it was in a different role. Uh, if I remember correctly, Tsukamoto was originally uh, scheduled to play one of the samurai uh, who persecute the Christians. Either he had to, he was scheduled for the character that would be played by Tadanobu Asano, which is the um, the interpreter character, 
or he was going to play the actual uh, you know head uh, christian hunter which he was played by uh, issei ogata finally in the final film uh, so his uh, martin scorsese changed his mind but always wanted him to be part of uh, of silence i already mentioned the issue of aging on my commentary to uh, kotoko uh, especially in relation to Tsukamoto himself as uh, a screen presence. Um, with silence, of course, he essentially played an old man, which made him decide to, you know, cut his hair and grow a beard and, and, and stop dyeing his hair and, and his beard, etc. And in a sense, uh, accept uh, his the fact that he is aging. Um, now, I asked Kamoto whether being in silence had any influence on him, his decision to make killing, in the sense that both are uh, period pieces about the samurai era. Uh, he said, no, that's not the case. Uh, but at the same time, it is my feeling that um, it is that embracing of, of his own aging, uh, embracing to the to the point of, you know, appearing on screen uh, without um, without hiding the signs of aging. Uh, doing that on silence uh, made it possible for him, I think, to to become Sawamura in Killing. Um, it's a character who is noticeably older. He could have been, you know, I guess he could have been the the, the, the Tsukamoto of uh, of Kotoko, you know, looking looking was kind of the same. Um, and, you know, anachronisms are not unusual in this film. Look at the character played by Tatsuya Nakamura, who plays the the head of the bandits. Um, and who previously played uh, also the head of bandits in Bullet Ballet, by the way. Um, who walks around in tattoos and dreadlocks, which of course is a complete anachronism. You know, made to look him like a villain, even though he's, he's if you really consider it, not really a villain. Um, he and the others are bandits because they look the part. You know, it's not because of their actions. Uh, just because they... they kicked Ichisuke into the mud, had a little fun with him, um, put him in his place, and recognizing him for a wannabe, being a wannabe. That's hardly a crime. And uh, certainly not a crime punishable by death, I would say. Um, but anyway, he, he is uh, certainly anachronism. So some of the anachronisms that may have happened had Tsukamoto appeared in killing, looking the way roughly he, had, he, he did when he appeared in... Uh, Kotoko or a Nightmare Detective might have worked, but of course the fact that he now as Sawamura appears on screen as a, a visibly recognizably older man of essentially at least a generation above um, above the hero, above Mokunoshi, really adds to uh, I think, to the impact that the character makes. Um, as I said before, you know, he's, he's an aging man who does not have that many more years ahead of him. 
um, you know, inside, in spite of all uh, Samurai's big talk about being ready to die any day or uh, that it's the, the, the function of the Samurai to die. Of course, most of them would, would, rather, <laughs> would rather have remained alive as long as possible. And um, for Sawamura, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he's, he has a few more years to go, but not that many. And would rather live them out in, uh, in familiar peace. And that puts him at odds, creates that generation gap with the character of, uh, of Mokunoshin. It would be interesting to see if, uh, if Tsukamoto is going to do more period pieces. It may well be a case that he will continue to, uh, to uh, say, explore Japan's past as a way to comment on its present, um, especially Japan's uh, martial past, uh, so to speak. It's violent past, it's, it's past of, of, of war and weapons. Um, that could also mean that he would, um, you know, give a, uh, to say, have a different approach to, to, um, to the music as well. As I say, it may, be, uh, it may come as, a, as an interesting um, factor. In, in change in Tsukamoto from here on in, on his films and on his, his characters. As well as on the themes he, he considers. But at the same time, wouldn't, you know, it could be something, uh, something really quite different again. Um, throughout the commentaries that I've recorded for this set, uh, I spoke many times about um, uh, links between his films. Um, I spoke quite a lot about the, uh, you know, the, 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 the phenomenon of evolution of the, the, the thematic, thematic content, uh, the preoccupations, the topics that he deals with uh, from film to film. Um, and so even though you could point at, uh, let's say, um, Moving from uh, Nightmare Detective, or no, let's say moving from Vital, you know, which is uh, which is a particular kind of film, to moving to Nightmare Detective, which you could see as a move from a drama to uh, to a horror, you know, genre from, to a horror genre film. Um, you could see that on the surface as something that is a, a kind of a rupture or a, or a radical break or a, quite a move away from what he did previously. But at the same time, you can see this in this evolution that it's essentially just a small step uh, from one to the other. So, you know, the same could go for, um, uh, you know, from Kotoko to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, Fires on the Plain seems a very different film, yet in, in one already uh, exists the seeds of the other. Um, and as we talked about fire, it's, it's, it's just a small step from Fires on the Plain to Killing, even though one is a World War II film and the other is a samurai film. Um, 
so it really remains to be seen if he does you know whether he he stays in what might we might see as a, as the same genre moving on from killing or whether he's going to do something uh, seemingly quite quite different but uh, one thing i know for sure is that it's inevitably we're going to uh, notice similarities and uh, and a gradual development of things that he has already been uh, working on has already been talking and thinking about well, in in killing and and in fires on the plane perhaps so uh, yeah lots to look forward to i would say and uh, for that reason too it's uh, it's really wonderful to now have this um, this blu-ray set which even though it doesn't contain all of his work uh, contains the majority of it and allows us to explore retrospectively um, his development as a filmmaker from a very very early age um, from the first the first official the first film in his official filmography and as i point out on the, my commentary in the adventure of denshi kozo he was making movies long before that even when he was already uh, or when he was still in high school and a student um, but in any case what we have here in the shape of this set um, is uh, allows us to uh, to trace that development uh, to trace the evolution the gradual changes all the way up to uh, the, the point where we are that's the great thing about having killing included in this set it uh, makes it uh, a a nicely completely rounded whole again even despite the fact that not all the films are in here for various reasons that i've gone into in previous commentaries um i think uh, i feel as you know as the person who has written uh, the major book in english at least on uh, on the work of Shinya Tsukamoto i feel that this blu-ray set um, allows us to uh, to look at his work in ways that we have not really had the occasion to uh, previously at least not uh, uh, us being uh, you know the, those who do not live in japan um, since complete sets have appeared on dvd in japan before box sets so this for us is the first uh, occasion that we get to uh, to do this and uh, for me who uh, was uh, you know who has been following Tsukamoto's work for many years has uh, inevitably had studied them in, in a fair amount of detail it's an absolute delight to uh, to get to do this again um, in a short and quite intensive period going through all of them and uh, having to find uh, uh, characteristics details and elements to comment on so it's been a great pleasure and i hope that for you uh, as you've hopefully followed these commentaries uh, ideally in chronological order um, i have hoped they've been they've been interesting and enlightening for you as well so thank you very very much for listening and uh, Take care. Bye-bye.